Welcome to Social Efficiencing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on coastal fisheries and fishing communities. We, we depend on the restaurants and when they go away, we go away. If you're an oyster farmer and you've been raising oysters and you have a lot of oysters on your farm that have gotten nothing uh, but bigger. We share this planet together and um, he would always tell me to care for the land, to care for all other beings. Hello, I'm your co-host, Emily D'Souza. I'm joined by... Philip Loring. And I'm Hannah Harrison. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. Throughout this podcast, we've focused most of our attention on wild harvest fisheries. But in doing so, we've been ignoring a pretty big fish, aquaculture. Aquaculture involves the cultivation of fish, shellfish, and marine plants such as seaweed, and is responsible for about 50% of global seafood production. While wild-caught fisheries have been largely stable in volume over the past several years, aquaculture is the fastest-growing form of food production in the world. But aquaculture can be a controversial word for some. Salmon and other finfish aquaculture around the world has developed a mixed reputation. On one hand, producing comparatively inexpensive, lean protein, and on the other hand, contributing to serious ecological and, in some places, social problems that continue to plague the industry today. Even with these challenges, aquaculture offers a way to diversify seafood production and add resilience to the global food economy. But like wild fisheries, the aquaculture sector hasn't been immune from the impacts of COVID-19 on seafood supply chains. That's right. So this week, we sat down with aquaculturalists from around North America to hear about how this specific area of seafood production was impacted by the pandemic and the unique ways, of course, in which seafood farmers have responded. First, we'll hear from a handful of folks who work in commercial oyster mariculture. Then we'll have a guest join us to tell us a really cool story about an indigenous fish hatchery in Canada. Our first stop this week is in South Carolina, where we spoke with Trey McMillan, Trey is the president of South Carolina Shellfish Growers Association and the founder and owner of Low Country Oyster Company. Now, oysters are not typically a seafood product that people consume at home. They can be difficult to shuck, especially if you don't have the right tools. And many consumers have concerns about the safety of live shellfish. So when restaurants shut down early in March due to COVID-19, Trey and his oyster farm felt the impacts immediately. Yeah, so before covid we uh, we typically raise anywhere from two to four million oysters a year. Um, obviously, we have to have a place for all these to go. And being in Charleston, Charleston's so uh, tourist driven that it's a it's a really good market. So we're pretty fortunate in the sense that we live so close to to such a big market. We we can typically sell about all we can grow here um, locally. You know, within a couple hundred miles of of where our farm is come COVID it pretty much all just shut down. I mean, the whole, not, not just my business as, as far as, you know, raising oysters and selling them to wholesalers and restaurants, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, just in general, all the restaurants in town close and that's the bad part about it. You know, we, we, we depend on the restaurants and when they go away, we go away. Due to the loss of their main market, Trey's oyster farm had to make difficult decisions when they found themselves with an oversupply of product and nowhere to sell it. So 
our operation didn't really change much. The only thing that really changed is we had a surplus of a product that we, we had to move. Like we, we've got to, in order to, to kind of keep the system flowing, the best way to think about it is kind of like an assembly line. If somebody in the middle of the assembly line kind of gets off, off beat than everybody else, then everybody behind them starts to back up and everybody in front of them is kind of doing nothing. Well, it's kind of the same thing. Like we, we got our whole crop, it takes us a year to grow everything. So everything we're doing now is for next year's crop. But this year's crop, the stuff that we're selling, it's got to go somewhere to make room for the new stuff to come in. And that's, that's where we got hit the hardest, really. It's, it's on top of not having any sales, then we end up throwing probably, I would say, over $100,000 worth of product, just dumping it in the creek because we had nowhere for it to go. And it got so big that it was actually starting to die off. So it just starts as a chain effect from there. So now that all your gears getting, or all your gears getting torn up because the oysters are getting too big, you don't have any room to put your new crop. So you kind of have to make a decision of, am I going to, you know, kind of wait it out and this thing could go away in two months and we'll get back to selling or are we going to make room for it and just dump this stuff on the bank, which is what we ended up having to do. Now, you might be wondering, why couldn't oyster farmers just leave their oysters in the water until market conditions return to normal? I was thinking the exact same thing, but Trey pointed out that it's actually not that simple. And in fact, leaving oysters in the water for longer than they should be there can actually be problematic. It gets to the point where they get so heavy and so big that we can't we can't fit enough in there. So we start running out of room and our actual gear to, you know, put the new stuff. And then nobody really wants those big oysters. And they're good for grilling and stuff like that. But it's not, you know, for us to ship them and deliver them and all that. Everything just gets so heavy that the, the price of shipping goes up. The, you know, we have to use more packing supplies. and it, get, it just gets to a point where it doesn't make sense. Now, there is a positive note to end Trey's story. Prior to COVID, his oyster company was the only one in South Carolina to ship directly to consumers. Having that infrastructure in place helped them to transition the entirety of their sales online once the pandemic hit, meaning that future harvests of oysters won't go to waste. We're actually the only company in South Carolina that actually ships direct to consumer. And so we, we were pretty fortunate with that. It, I, I wouldn't say it was, you know, everything to keep the business going because that, that was, that's not the case. You know, I mean, we, we were hit significantly hard, but we were lucky in the sense that we had somewhat of another avenue, not nearly as big or as lucrative as, you know, wholesale is, but uh, we, we did have the option to kind of switch gears and, and start doing more marketing towards direct consumer, you know, basically go on our website. And you can pick what day you want them to show up, and they we ship them through the country every day. So that that that's one way that I, I think a lot of people kind of were for, forced into that avenue. But like I said, we we were fortunate in the in the sense that we were already kind of set up for it, so we already had all the the packaging and you know all the shipping materials, a pretty established shipping account, and and the whole nine yards. So it was uh, definitely a, a saving grace for us to at least just you know, try to keep our payroll taken care of and, and, and keep families fed. Now, we've heard a lot about the shift to selling direct to consumer on this podcast. For many, it was the only way to stay afloat when COVID-19 closed export markets and restaurants. Our next podcast guest, though, cautioned against touting direct sales as a silver bullet to seafood industry problems. We've heard a lot about people pivoting to direct sales. You know, a lot. Let you know. Let's do this direct. 
I think that's fantastic. I think that growers, producers that can do that of any type of seafood, I think that's fantastic to add to what you do. It's a tempting answer because it sounds great. It sounds, uh, it sounds like you're being adaptive and you're responding to a consumer need and, and you are. But what I found though is that that seems to be a better answer for the smaller producers. Um, because a larger proportion of their sales can go to that. Whereas some of the big producers, some of the most successful farms that we have, they can, they can add that to what they do, but it cannot replace the, the volume of sales that they were doing with restaurants. That's Bill Walton, a professor at the Auburn University Shellfish Lab. Obviously, restaurants have been trying everything uh, that they can to try to survive and that's included a lot of this curbside delivery. And so we've seen some restaurants embrace this idea of, hey, not only um, can you get fish or, or something, but we'll have oysters as well. And so featuring oysters. And so we've had, I've seen cases where restaurants have specifically tried to rotate through different farms on different weeks so that they have different oysters featured so they can try to get some sales for um, farmers uh, of their product. Uh, one of the more interesting things has been this, I've seen uh, a number of organizations like the Sea Grant Organization, Nature Conservancy, they have now started looking to oyster aquaculture and seeing if there's a way to engage that industry with some of the restoration efforts that, that they have underway. And so creating essentially a new market for some of these oysters. So you can imagine if you're an oyster farmer and you've been raising oysters and sales came to a complete halt um, in March and April, and they haven't picked up much. You have a lot of oysters on your farm that have gotten nothing uh, but bigger as they've grown. And those from a, a traditional uh, half shell market um, are not, they're losing value. I mean, you're continuing to grow those animals, but their value is dropping. So this idea of creating a brand new market of where these oysters that had been farmed, but now are, are sort of very large oysters, that they could be um, purchased at some discounted rate by organizations trying to do oyster restoration where they would take those oysters and put those out on reefs um, for restoration and conservation purposes is, a, is an interesting direction that we've seen go. I think that's pretty innovative and a, and a very different um, approach than we might have tried before COVID. One point Bill highlighted was the additional layer of challenges that oyster farmers face because of how far ahead they need to plan their seasonal farming operations. I think we're going to see a couple long-term consequences. Um, and the real fear is that they could be long-lasting. With the lack of sales or the, the dramatic reduction in sales this year, we're going to have a number of farms um, that didn't have the funds available to grow their farm or even get the amount of seed, the oyster seed, that they would normally get. So an individual farm may have reduced production. The cascading effect of that is that commercial hatcheries that produce this seed, um, I don't know what their financial status is. And so you could imagine if the hatcheries cannot survive, if we have hatcheries go under, uh, that has a very dramatic impact in the long term, not just next year, but for many, many years going forward if we start to lose those hatcheries. I'm not predicting this, I'm saying this is a possibility. I think it's something that we have to keep an eye on, and I think it's something that uh, industry uh, growers associations have been sounding the alarm about. Uh, we need to have them survive because that is where the growth uh, of the industry going forward will come from. 
Bill ended our conversation with some particularly poignant comments about the importance of supporting North America's domestic seafood industry to keep coastal communities alive. The success of North American seafood, to me, has hinged on this idea that um, we are producing a high quality product that is worth paying a little bit more for. And there are cheaper options available for seafood, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But for our coastal communities to survive, the model that, that I would sort of advocate for has been trying to go with quality. That does depend in turn on having a restaurant system that supports that so the consumers can get that. And understanding the importance of that relationship going forward is really critical for everyone, that the producers all the way through to the consumer understanding that chain. There is a connection between what happens at that fancy restaurant in Toronto or New York City um, and then what happens out in a rural coastal community. And understanding that connection is important because COVID has really highlighted how intimately connected those are. We also had the pleasure of speaking with Boris Guerrero, an oyster farmer from Louisiana, who found himself pleasantly surprised by the number of consumers who were willing to try oysters at home once COVID hit. Before COVID, I, I didn't think uh, people you know, liked shucking oysters at their house, but <laughs> I, I was surprised. I really thought, man, this is not, it's going to be hard to sell oysters at, at, you know, for people at, at their house because I mean, a lot of a lot of people like oysters, and a lot of them are you know older people that can't really open them. I guess if if restaurants are not open anymore, you know, people and people still want to eat oysters, I think they're more willing to try at that point. The success of direct oyster sales and the positive response from consumers has encouraged Boris to think about making direct sales a permanent part of his business model. It's a way that we keep in touch with the. The, the consumers and the customers, it's a very different uh, relationship than a wholesale seafood. I think it's very important just just having that direct relationship and getting the consumer and customers to know you gives uh, like a, a cutting edge to your product because we are we are the farmers, we're growing them and we're giving it to the consumer. So we take care of the product, we can explain anything they need to know. And I think that uh, gives the consumer more confidence in buying your products. Cultivating these more personal relationships has allowed Boris to increase transparency in an industry that has been notoriously opaque. You can put your product out there and, you know, it, it's your own. You, you you care for it and you can show people the whole process. I think that that's what that's what we started social media, just really to show what people, what we were doing. We definitely uh, use our social media for people to learn and, and see how aquaculture and shellfish farming is beneficial. Uh, to make people understand that, you know, this is not, this is not bad. We're not contaminating. We're not putting anything in the water. You know, this, they're filter feeders and they filter the bay. So that, that is uh, something simple that I can uh, explain. Our last stop today is a very different type of aquaculture story than what we've heard so far. And to help us tell that story, we've invited master's student Vanessa Cunningham to join us. Welcome, Vanessa. Hi there. Over the past year or so, Vanessa has been working in the Coastal Roots Lab, exploring food sovereignty and security. Yes. And today I'd like to introduce you to Aaron Pamajawan, who is a member of the Shwanaga First Nation and also the hatchery operator of the Shwanaga Fish Hatchery on the shores of Georgian Bay in Ontario. 
The Schwanica First Nation Fish Hatchery was established to help support and rebuild the local walleye population. The walleye population is, is very healthy. Um, we've seen some areas where there weren't walleye, they're walleye now. So like, it, it's having an impact, a positive impact uh, on, on the walleye population. These more abundant walleye populations are important as the hatchery also supports traditional practices and facilitates the deep relationship the community has with the lands and waters. Our First Nation people will uh, harvest fish for their families, um, for their close relatives and stuff, and uh, they can also will harvest for, um, for ceremonies and uh, gatherings. And that's, uh, you know, like, and we give our thanks, you know, we'll put down our tobacco and, you know, make sure we give thanks for the, uh, for the fish that we have, we've harvested for our families and to help sustain our families. The hatchery supports the harvesting of walleye each year, as well as a number of other important activities. One that really stood out to me was the dedication to include youth in the process. We'll set up a little pool and we'll gather walleye for them so that they can um, harvest the, their own fish for their families. And then we will take that walleye and bring them over and we'll dem demonstrate uh, the flaying of the, of the walleye. When we bring our, our students there, we want to show them that this is how we do our stuff traditionally. We will give tobacco for that fish that gave its life for us so we can have life and that and that conservation and that stewardship of the land so then that way when they get older they will understand and respect the land and respect that fish so it'll get it'll get passed on as they get older and then passed down to their children and then from their children to their children's children and so that way we will know that our people will have um, that resource there for for generations to come Another community activity that takes place annually is a shore lunch, where people come together to eat fish prepared by a local elder and guide. But because of COVID-19, the shore lunch could not take place, but the community still found an alternative way to get fish out to the community. So this year, due to the COVID-19 um, pandemic, um, it was kind of hard to bring our community members down to down to the river and, um, and, and you know, enjoy a shore lunch there. So... What they had decided to do is uh, they decided to phone our members, uh, you know, because we're quarantined, and uh, this they um, cooked up a big fish fry at the healing center, and then the healing center members went out and delivered delivered a fresh fish uh, meal to uh, whoever whoever wanted one. Aaron also talked about river monitors, members of the First Nation who live along the river during the spawning season to count fish, monitor the population and prevent any interference with spawning fish. This year, because of social distancing restrictions, this job was much harder. We usually have our monitors down there for three days, three days on and then three days off. But uh, being down there and not being able to stay sanitized and clean and all that, so what we decided to do was to have um, 12 hour shifts. So we had our guys, um, do a shift change at eight o'clock in the morning and then eight o'clock at night. Our monitors, they were able to, you know, go home, get clean and make sure they're all, you know, sanitized. And, um, and that's how we did it through the whole, the whole season. And it worked out, worked out good. Um, mind you, we, we, there was a few more, a little more on the expensive side of, uh, of fuel, but we made it work. That's for sure. Aaron also shared his story about spending time hunting and fishing with his dad and how during these times, his dad taught him to respect and care for fish and all life 
just as he did for the fish in his hatchery today. We'd walk down to the river and harvest our fish and or we'd go out hunting. He was just always telling me to be grateful and thankful, you know, especially when we harvested, you know, harvested our food. We share this planet together and um, he would always tell me, you know, to care for the land, to care for the fish, to care for all other beings and because they're part of our life. Special thanks today to our guest host, Vanessa Cunningham. To learn more about Vanessa's work on food security and sovereignty, find her information in the description of this episode. Thanks for joining us. Social Fishtensing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America and beyond for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope that you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and the Miopar Network. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today we heard from Trey McMillan, Bill Walton, Boris Guerrero, and Aaron Pimajuan. You're listening to Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, available from the Free Music Archive. See you next time.